Welcome to Stand Up Pedal Action. Imagine you are at the top of your chosen field. You have built a career that has been marked by consistent success, but right as you are going to step away, something comes along that could ruin the legacy of everything you worked for. Just a few days ago, the cycling world was shocked to learn that Katie Compton, the most decorated athlete in U.S. cyclocross history, failed an out-of-season drug test last year. We had the chance to sit down with Katie the day after news went public of her positive test and subsequent four-year ban from cycling. At SUPA, we want to introduce you to the humans behind the headlines, as Josh likes to say. With that in mind, this first half of our two-part interview with Katie is about her career, her love of cycling, what it was like to stick with it through the many challenges of two decades in professional racing, as well as what is coming next in life after competition. In the second half of our interview, which will air soon, we dive into the recent news of her positive test result, talk through what it has been like for her as an athlete to try to fight a ban for a substance she denies intentionally taking, and we get her take on the challenges involved in keeping the sport of cycling clean. We hope you'll join us for both parts of the story with one of the most successful bike racers in U.S. history, Katie Compton. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of SUPA. Today, we have something pretty ridiculous that's going to happen. A lot of podcasts start out and you try to get, you know, better and better people to interview and you try to work your way up the chain. But here, right off the bat, we probably have the most decorated cyclist that is likely to ever sit in a chair in the blanket fort. Ladies and gentlemen, today we have Katie Compton. Josh, take it away with an intro. You might know her as Katie Effin Compton. That's actually what she is in the show notes that Josh <laughs> and I are looking at here. Yes. Um, just a, a brief rundown of some of the accolades. It, a lot of people know this aspect of, of your career. Uh, if we listed all of them, we'd be here all day. The number of times that you've stood on a podium probably exceed what I can fathom at this point. But just real rough, you've you've done cyclocross mostly in your career, cycling, and you have 15 national titles, and those were consistent. Consecutive 15 on the trot, as they say, across the pond. So for 15 straight years, you were the national champion in cyclocross, which means you got to wear the Stars and Stripes jersey on the world stage where you won all sorts of races, just back to back to back, different years. You've been doing it for a long time. And I also saw that you have some uh, mountain bike short track wins in there. It's uh, some exciting stuff, fast paced. Uh, but more than that, you have been a huge inspiration in the cycling world. And you obviously have a passion for caring for others and mentoring others, coaching, developing the community and you know you're just an overall legend for for a sport that we all love and have a passion for so beyond that we would love to dig into who you are behind the biking and how that came to be so just to start off where are you from <laughs> well first of all thank you for that introduction that was um that makes me feel really good. <laughs> <laughs> well, and um, we didn't even get to, let's see, yeah. Olympic gold yeah. medals, yeah. 24 oh. World yeah. Cup wins. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I won the overall twice. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's been an amazing process. Like, I've had so many 
amazing experiences and adventures with bike racing, and it's been incredible experience. Um, it's something I've been doing my whole life. I've always loved it. Um, I raced as a junior. My dad was a bike racer. Um, he ran the local bike club. He put on bike races. Um, just had a really involved like mom and dad in sports. And my brother, he was into different sports, but we just were an athletic family. Um, but I grew up in Delaware. So I grew up riding in the Mid-Atlantic region. Um, the amount of single track in Delaware is incredible. Delaware, Maryland, PA, like that area. Spent some time out at Patapsco. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah i rode a lot of those parks uh i think like i had no idea where i grew up but like i grew up kind of on the edge of delaware in delaware but on the edge of maryland and pa we had maybe over 100 miles of single track out the door oh wow i had no idea how amazing that was until i moved someplace yeah. where we've got great trails in colorado springs mm -hmm. but the amount of single track close to my parents house it was amazing so i grew up riding on that and chasing friends around chasing boyfriends around and like like older older Wait, masters guys how often so, were your boyfriends chasing you um, on the bike <laughs> there was that too but like it was i mostly dated guys older than i was so they were pretty fast okay <laughs> well we'll just go ahead and note for the record that you had to date guys older than you to get them faster than you yeah 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 and i did i like to be challenged so it was always fun like i learned how to do a jump and bunny hop on the mountain bike because i was trying to keep up with a boyfriend who could jump stuff and like we did a lot of night riding, so things came up real quick. And it's either I pull up and jump it or I crash. So I was like, everything <laughs> you can to jump it. And I did it the first time and I was like, whoa. I was like, okay, that's how you do it. And then it kind of went from there. Yeah. But you do. You learn so many great skills trying to chase somebody around single track, learn how to apex mm -hmm. turns and carry speed and uh, pre shift and brake at the right time. So, yeah. Ah. Uh, it was, I think that's kind of made me the bike rider I am because I developed the technical skills on like a 26 inch hardtail with 80 mm -hmm. mil of travel. So oh, yeah. you learn to ride technical stuff with that, like riding 120, 130 mil and 29 er wheels. It's yeah. like, it's, it's a lot easier with bikes nowadays. That feels like cake. Cause that's basically how I started as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Old 26 mm -hmm. inch rim brake, yep, 80 mils, yep, like yep. in Illinois. Cantilever brakes. Oh, don't gosh, stop at all. Yeah. <laughs> little tiny bars that are yep, barely wider yep. than roadies. So you can get bars. through the single track? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I actually was, just this mm -hmm. summer, I was back in Illinois riding at a place called Kickapoo State Park, where it's one of the oldest trail networks in Illinois. Mm -hmm. And those trails were built for those old handlebars. Yeah. And the trees have only grown bigger. Yeah. So I'm yeah. back there with these like 800 mil uncut, yeah. like wide bar, short stem, Colorado style, yep. not working out. <laughs> not working out. No. And like even some of the trails here, my bars are narrow for compared to what bars are. I can't remember. Yeah. They're like 730s or something, mm -hmm. and I cut them down a bit. Um, but like even my bars, I, I'll catch on a tree, or sometimes I'll just oh, have yeah. to do a quick little maneuver, and I'm like, <laughs> that could have been painful. <laughs> that could have been bad. Yeah, when I grew up on bars as wide as your shoulders. Right, yeah. Didn't think anything of it. So when did yeah. you go from just riding around for fun? Mm -hmm. Was there a point when all of a sudden it was like, hey, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. This could be a thing. Um, honestly, I was riding around for fun like pretty much all the time mm -hmm. um let me see i started as a junior i did junior junior national team junior worlds that sort of thing uh then i did i raced on the velodrome at the track in t-town did mountain biking uh road racing i just enjoyed all of it went through college kind of took a break during college um and then when i moved out to colorado springs i started working for Commonwealth train systems as a coach mm -hmm. and that's where i met the coach of the u.s paralympic cycling team at that point and right. he needed a pilot for a blind athlete on a tandem. And that was in like 2002. Mm -hmm. So I got involved with Paras 
um, after college and kind of taken that hiatus from racing as a junior 23 mm-hmm. um, to moving to Paris. And I was, I think I was a tandem hop for five years, four or five years, which was amazing. I loved it. It was great. Yeah. Let, fill us in on that a little more because most of the stories that we hear in mm-hmm. cycling, mm-hmm. it's a very individualistic sport. Even in a team, mm-hmm. it's you on your bike. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Filling in your role. So mm-hmm. what is that like? How does that work? Like, Yeah. So a tandem, obviously, it's a bike for two. You have a pilot on the front and a stoker on the back. Mm-hmm. And you work together. You have to pedal the bike together. You have to get out of the saddle together. It's like, it's kind of a real, like the most efficient way to race a tandem is to do everything at the same time and communicate well. And like mm-hmm. all the movements are the same. The balance is the same. The pedaling is the same. My partner and I were really good at that, and that's how we excelled. Like, we could do one kilometer sprint out of the saddle uphill. Oh, wow. Without, like, some, I mean, I want to say it felt like a single bike, but no, because it's a heavy bike that the pilot definitely has to control. You kind of have to manhandle it. Yeah. So the strong shoulders, <laughs> and, like, that helped in yeah. that process. So wait a minute, though. Mm-hmm. What, what was the first ever ride like? On the tandem? Like with your partner, yeah. How, uh, that, how does how does that work? How do you step up and say like, "All right, we're gonna try this." Also, you can't see. Yeah, and she was she wasn't hundred percent blind. She uh she could see objects and colors in her periphery, mm-hmm. and she had like central blindness, which you think would be okay, but it makes it worse when you're riding a bike and things are just flashing by really quick. Wow! And you're in her the center of her vision. Yes, the person she needs to coordinate with. Yes, so she can't see yes. you at all. Yeah, so a really good stoker will actually not look around. They need to keep their balance straight and their head looking straight. So actually somebody who's blind on the back of the tandem does a better job than someone who's sighted because someone who's sighted is constantly looking around. Yeah. So, I mean, there is that. But she was also just really good at it. And I wasn't her first pilot. Yeah. And then I uh, I was just good at riding bikes yeah. and good at the balance. And we just gelled immediately. Uh, so That's I think awesome. that first season we won, I think, a world championship and European championships, like right off the bat. Yeah. So yeah, fun. I can't remember if it was Euros or like World Champs that season, but we won straight I would away. There's mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of communication mm-hmm. that you're, are you constantly giving feedback, like talking, talking about the course, like upcoming turns? Um, or? Not really. Oh, okay. my pot, my stoker was really good. Uh, I would tell her when we're Alice out on shifting, but she could feel it. She knew she could yeah. feel going around a turn. I think I would say, um, if we're out of saddle and having a shift, I would tell her when we're shifting just so she mm-hmm. can let off on the pedals. Oh, yeah. Um, especially shifting to a light gear out of the saddle on a tandem. You yeah. definitely have to, like, make sure that's coordinated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she she was great and just followed me. And I think the first year or two, we communicated quite a bit. But once we were racing, she just followed and mimicked what I did. And wow. I would be, like, the top of the hills, one minute, two minutes. I try to get yeah. time and not distance. Oh, yeah. So like when we we're doing intervals, mm-hmm. I would give her like, okay, settle into 10 minutes or five minutes or eight. Like I would try to give her an idea with that because distance, you yeah. don't necessarily, unless you're on the velodrome, you don't necessarily know what that distance is, especially for climbing. Sure. Yeah. I would give her time. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. That's, that's wild. Yeah. Maybe we should try that sometime. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, dibs on not wearing a blindfold. <laughs> oh boy. I it's to tough it. to ride on the back. I did it once with my coach. We just kind of uh, on the track just to kind of see how it was. I did one lap and I'm like, get me off. No, I am not doing this. I do not <laughs> want to give up control. Well, yeah, was it terrifying uh, to be out of control and trusting someone else? Yes, it was. It was. So when you have like a blind person on the back, there's a certain amount of um, confidence they have to have in you and trust. Mm-hmm. And that's like, I think, a heavy responsibility for the pilot to keep them safe. 
So yeah. that was also something I considered and just made sure I didn't want to make her scared or stressed. I sure. wanted her calm. So I did everything I could to facilitate yeah, her emotions. <laughs> yeah. So they're like in a happy spot and not constantly yeah. like, like quick and nervous and twitchy. Did you two ever put a bike down? Yeah. Oh yeah. We crashed a couple times. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it like road racing in Europe on with 20 tandems and you know, they're blind because that's the road racing world. tiny little European roads. These were a little bit bigger because they are tandems. Like, and so they have like the roads you race on were bigger because we have hand cycles and mm -hmm. um, yeah. trikes and such. So everything needs to be wider for para competition, like the roads. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, we crashed a couple times in the road racing. And one of it is uh, we got taken out by a Spanish tandem that just literally just went from the right side to the left side of the peloton without looking oh, and no. took the front row down. Oh and so gosh. we all crashed. It's probably seven tandems went down, maybe 10, like oh. half the field went down. And it, I mean, this is bad. It was pretty hilarious because everybody's half of them are yeah. blind. Yeah. So they jump <laughs> up and they're like, where's my bike? They're like trying to feel things out and oh, search no. for things and like oh, no. you got like a marco polo thing trying to find your <laughs> oh, your bionic stoker and like some trying i'm like don't this is not funny yeah. <laughs> which i felt horrible but i'm also like this is hilarious but yeah. yet i should not be <laughs> i should not be finding this so entertaining oh my gosh <laughs> but yeah you're just trying to find your partner and the stokers are trying to find their pilots and they're trying to find the bike and get back on it and start back racing it was, it was a bit of a cluster okay i'm glad you actually said it that, was hilarious that was the first thing i was thinking when you described that when you started to tell a story i was like wait a minute that's a bunch of blind people yeah like, bike yeah. wrecks look like a disaster yes anyway, but... and tandems especially because <laughs> you can really get hurt in a tandem because you don't it's like hard to tuck and roll you just you hit separate, and you fall over you just slide yeah mm. um because the tandems are so the wheelbase is so long mm. like you can't kind of flip over yeah you just oh, yeah, um you just hit and like if and you hit a curb it. like you can't even lift up the front end because you need like it's really oh, hard to even no pull way, the front yeah. end um so it's you hit and it's you just hit and stop wow yeah wow. so okay so how did that portion of your career come to an end was that your decision? Was it your partner? It was kind of mutual. We actually didn't get along personality-wise. Okay. We rode really well together, but we were like oil and water. So yeah. um, it just got to a point where we just didn't get along and it wasn't fun anymore. And like we had won everything and set world mm -hmm. records and just like had a great time of it. And we got to a point where I was like, you know what? It's enough. I think yeah. this is the time to move. And I was doing really well in cross and I can't race professionally cross and race as a tandem pilot because I wanted to amateur. Mm. So it was like, it could re keep racing pairs or it can get paid to race cross. And I jumped and I was like, I'm going to get paid to race cross. I love it. And I'm good at it. I want to do this. So I did that. And I think 2007 is when I started getting paid to race cross. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is a great segue into mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the balance mm -hmm. of your career. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we were talking about this sort of in the pre-roll before the show. This is something that I'm really curious mm -hmm. about because most Americans don't know anything about cycling mm -hmm. as yeah. a professional sport. Yeah. And of those who do, mm -hmm. even fewer mm -hmm. even know what or understand mm -hmm. cyclocross. If mm -hmm. you say it, they're like, wait, don't you mean gravel racing? No. <laughs> no. Right. So <laughs> Absolutely not. You don't want to ride 150 miles on Kansas dirt roads? Yeah. And get no. lost and hit a cow? No. Uh, <laughs> we were talking I know to people who would. Yeah. We were talking oh, to sure. Nick Gould recently, and yeah. uh, he'll be on the show at some yeah. point. Yeah. yeah, he was telling us about nearly hitting cows in, oh, Kansas for sure. in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, I have no desire to gravel. Like, that's far too long for me. Yeah. I uh, 
gravel i like it to a point but i don't know if i need 100 miles of it mm -hmm. maybe maybe 60 is plenty <laughs> um but i like cross because it's short and sweet and fun and intense and but and i'm done as soon as i'm tired yeah where it's like i don't want to keep going for four hours when i'm when i've like you know decided my body's had enough <laughs> like i know like where my strengths are and it's not pushing through something and suffering just to suffer Gotcha. I have no desire, none. <laughs> All right, so how did you get into that? Because there's very little cyclocross racing in America to start yes. with. And there would have been even less yes. in the in, early 2000s. Yes, so I started racing cross in, I think, 90s, 98 or 99, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Mid-Atlantic region, um, they have a really strong cyclocross uh, environment. Mm -hmm. I could do racing twice a weekend, every weekend if I wanted. The prize money was good. I was in college, and so... Instead of having to work, I could just make thousand bucks a weekend racing. Yeah, oh, wow. yeah. So I mean, a bad day was five hundred because I could win both days. Two fifty mm -hmm. five hundred dollars a win every weekend in the fall. It's you know decent money. Yeah. So um, I did that through college, and just I had a really amazing group of people to ride with, mm -hmm. like friends I still keep in touch with. Um, they're still like in Delaware. I go when I go back home to see family. I, I try to catch up with them and ride with them, and it's yeah. like we I never left, and it's great. That's awesome. So, were you being coached at that point? Like, or was it just no. like you were literally just, I'm going to go do this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, honestly, the way it started, and people know this story if they read like mm -hmm. kind of how I got into cross, but like I started cross because I was hanging out in a bar. I had just gotten back from a trip in Europe that did not go well. I was U23. I sucked. I got dropped every day, like racing hilly races. And I'm a big girl who was 30 pounds heavier than I am now. Yeah. And a crit racer. But I came back from Europe and I was like, I'm done. I'm done with bike racing. I quit. And this mm -hmm. was in like, I think October I came back. Mm -hmm. And so for college, I took a semester off. So I couldn't take winter session until January. So I had like two or three months to yeah. not do anything. So I spent, <laughs> spent that time, I think, drinking from Tuesday through Saturday nights, maybe. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I had a good group. I had a friend of mine who was retired from work and uh, he would be my riding buddy and we'd just go drinking. <laughs> Training tips here. I know, uh, right? Nutrition and training tips <laughs> coming at you from Supa right here. Right? Yeah, I think by the end of this interview, people are like, is she an alcoholic? Because <laughs> it's a slippery slope. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was in the bar one night and uh, my friend was bartending because I wasn't quite 21 yet. So she was hooking me up with drinks and I drank whiskey sours at this point, which, yeah, there's go down well, but don't. Mm -hmm. You know, the next morning's rough. But like I had friends in there, they're like talking me in his racing cyclocross. They're racing your uh race the next day in New Jersey. And they kept on trying to talk me into racing because they're like, You're gonna be so good at cross, you gotta do it. Like mm -hmm. with the track and the mountain bike skills, like you have the speed and the skill, it'll be so good at it. And I was like, No, I do not want to run with my bike. It's the dumbest thing. I'm not right. racing this sport. And I think they bought me like one or two more drinks. I was pretty drunk when I left. And then <laughs> they're like I, I was like, fine, I will do this race if you stop badgering about it. Just like, yeah. I will do it if you stop asking me. And so, sure enough, they picked me up at 6.30 in the morning. I was still drunk. I woke up <laughs> in the back of the truck at the race two hours later, hung over. And they're like, hey, are you going to register? And I was like, oh, I will. How much time do I have? <laughs> <laughs> because, like, once I say I'm going to do something, I do it. Like, I'm yeah. going to follow through. If I committed mm -hmm. to something, like, I'm like, all right, I will not let you down. I will commit. I will do yeah. this. So I got up, I think, right for registration closed, registered, grabbed the number. I had my single speed mountain bike because I didn't have a cross bike. Mm -hmm. And I jumped on and I raced, no warm up, just out of the truck, still what, hung over. What was that bike, by the way? Do you still, do you remember? Um, 
I think it was a spot single speed. It was oh, a proper wow. single speed, oh. 26 inch yeah. cantilever brakes. I think it was an 80 mil. It might've been a rigid. I don't know. It was my <laughs> most fun bike. Oh, you know, it was a Kona. It was oh, a Kona. Yeah. Okay. It was my most fun bike. I love that single speed. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty much the trails in Delaware. You can get away with riding a yeah. single speed for everything. And it's perfect bike, mm-hmm. but even a rigid really. But I got rid- I raced that race and I had a blast. I got second. I threw up at the finish line and I was like, <laughs> I want to do this again tomorrow or the next weekend. Wow. And they're like, really? I was like, it was so fun. So that was kind of the start of me racing cross. And I did that for a couple seasons. And then I moved out to Colorado. I didn't race cross for a bit. Uh, and then I had another roommate, Doug Ryden. I don't know if you guys know Doug Ryden. Mm-mm. He's awesome. He was a roommate from, of mine when I was like in the early 2000s. He got me back into racing cross. So we got up to Boulder and did some cross races. And then um, I did well with it, racing women's. Um, and then I met my husband in Canada at a U.S. Paralympic or uh, Paralympics race. Um, and then he got me into cross again. So I kind of like was dabbling okay. my foot here and there, enjoying some local racing. And then when I met my husband, he talked me into like, he, like you're good at this. You need to race this more. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay. And so I went and raced more in Boulder. I raced the Cat 3 men's races and like the women's races did back to back. And then I think I won a Cat 3 race like in 2004 sometime. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, it kind of took off. That's when I went to nationals in 2004 and won mm-hmm. from like the back row. And oh, it wow. kind of just won from there. So it was like first national championship, first national level race. Yeah. Um, it was like 2004, I was still racing Paris. I raced Paris 2006. So I didn't have any UCI points. I just started in like in a back row of a hundred rider field. At that first race, were you just kind of there to say, eh, we'll see what happens? Or yeah. was it like, I, yeah. did you know on the start line, even though you were in the back, was it like, I will win this? No, like, absolutely not. I no. went in just like, Mark and I were like kind of daydreaming before going to bed, thinking like, how cool would it be if you won tomorrow? And I was like, yeah, right. Like, I have no idea. I've never raced nationally. I don't know how, I don't know how I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're sleeping in my friend's basement on the futon, like super cheap, trying to save money. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I just started that race and just, it was a muddy race. It was super fun, technical, hard power. And I just like moved the field in the first lap. And then I think by the second lap, I was at the front and then, yeah, it, I was just like, where, huh, how, how did this happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So and it just kind of went from there. Wow. For yeah. those who don't know, cross, mm-hmm. cross racing you know, it's it's multi-lap, it's short courses. The courses are usually ringed with a lot of fans. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's mm-hmm. one of the best venues mm-hmm. for uh, an audience, like yep. to to really cheer you on. Yeah, spectators yeah. to to participate. And What's like that light, it is amazing because like the first race in two thousand four was in Portland, and Portland has a huge cyclocross bike racing scene, and they had like a marching band there, a drum band there playing. They had people lining the course. It was just a huge party atmosphere. It was a wonderful place to like have the first win just because it was such an iconic like cyclocross area with that mud and the fans and such. Um, but yeah, so cyclocross is, I think it's like a 3K, has it 3K? Uh, UCI. 1.5 3K, to 2, yeah, yeah 3K mm-hmm. course. Um, timed 45 minutes to an hour depending on the category and the race. But yeah, it's short and sweet and fun and intense. And mm-hmm. I think it's the most entertaining bike racing to watch. There's of all a lot of, of mud involved. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These, and that was one of the things that mm-hmm. when I first, uh, a million years ago, when I first heard about cyclocross, mm-hmm. I, I was just perplexed because it seems like it's a diabolical exercise in how can we make it as miserable as possible? <laughs> 
which is true. And it's funny because like <laughs> one thing with cross and people don't necessarily see like a cross racers perspective, but you're racing during the crappiest time of the year. Yeah. And it's super easy to, to oh, go race your bike when it's cold and just do short, sweet and intense. And then use the summer, spring to do the miles and the long distance and the base um, and like the intervals okay. and such. So you think about it, you're racing in the worst conditions so you can train in the best conditions. Instead of the opposite, like road racing, you kind of train in cold weather and then you race in rain. So oh. for six hours. <laughs> so, and I got to the point where I was like, I don't, I don't train in the rain. I like, unless I'm in Belgium, because there's no choice. But if in Colorado and yeah. training, if it's raining out or snowing, I'll go, go for a run. I'll go do the incline, but mm -hmm. I will not ride my bike in the bad weather because I don't have to. I do it all winter. So I was just going to say pick that, and sounds, that sounds so counterintuitive to somebody yeah. who races cyclocross to say, oh, I don't ride in bad weather. Like, wait, wait <laughs> hold on. That's literally all you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And luckily in the spring, since we have so much like kitty litter and loose gravel and like slippery trails, mm -hmm. it's pretty much mimics the feeling of mud. Okay. So like even racing down Captain Jack's, it's so loose that it kind of yeah. feels like mud. And so you get used to slipping and sliding. And I think that's why I can do fun in the mud without ever riding in mud because I ride in gravel and sand all the time. Okay. So there's that. There, I love all aspects of cycling, especially off-road, anything that isn't pavement, mm -hmm. except one thing, mm. and that is sand. <laughs> and yeah, it's, how does that get to a point where you're like, yeah, this is going to be a sandy course with these ruts that are like so deep you could just like drop a book into them? Yep. Sounds like a good idea. Yeah. You know, it depends on the sand. Belgian okay. sand is different than U.S. sand because it's it's saltier, it's stickier. So it actually, mm -hmm. the ruts get formed and they stick. Okay. And so Belgian sand is actually really fun to ride through if you've got the horsepower. Like, yeah. you definitely need to pick the day. I've, I've been out in the sand in Belgium on a day where I'm tired and it is not pretty. I just be like, pack up my stuff and go home. And like, today is not <laughs> the day to do sand training. Cause I just, I can't keep my bike upright. I make mistakes. My dismounts are bad. Mm -hmm. Transition from riding to running is bad. So I just like scrap it and go do something else. But when you're on your power's good and you're doing specific sand training, it is so fun. Cause you fall, my mind is getting sand in your shifters is no big deal. <laughs> and like dropping into um, some of the sandy downhills if you're a skier, it's like dropping into a powder run. Really? Yeah. yeah. And it's super fun. And you just kind of let it go. Okay. Um, but U.S. sand is different because it's, it's drier. It's not as salty. So it doesn't, not, ruts don't form. It just falls apart. And you end up running it more than you riding it. Right. So I get it. Like, unless you've been in Belgium and kind of ridden that sand, you don't, it's not the right perspective you'd have totally. if you're just riding American sand. Maybe if you're on the beach in the U.S., it'd be mm. fine. But that's... Not too many races. Right. No, that totally makes sense because I think, especially those of us in the Mountain West, yeah. the place where we encounter sand the most would be like, oh, you go to Moab yeah. and you get the brilliant idea to yeah. ride like Poison Spider or yeah. something and yes. it's just moon dust. Yeah. And there's no riding through it. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you have like a throttle. Like, right. good yeah. luck with that. Um, <laughs> and some wider tires. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like sand is really fun, but you need the technique. Mm -hmm. You need the technique and the technique is everything. Like watching Matthew Vanderpoel ride through the sand, it is incredible. Like, what, what do is, you see as a racer mm -hmm. that he does that most of us would miss? Honestly, I don't know if you'd actually see what he does because hmm. he's that good at the technical bits where he just knows how to apply the horsepower. He knows the balance and the technique and like just how to ride through the sand, I think, better than anybody. And it's pretty incredible, incredible to watch. 
And I, I don't know. I don't think you'd put your finger on it because yeah. it's so subtle you wouldn't see it. Okay. But it's a feeling mm-hmm. and it's a horsepower thing. And it's application of that horsepower to get through the sand. Yeah. And I think he's one of the, he is the best for sure. And his record shows it. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And when he's having a bad day, he just runs and he's just quick on and off the bike. And he, uh, he sees that and he just m- makes a change and, and does it works. And I'm guessing yeah. even that is a learned skill in that sport yep. in particular, yep. that how quickly you can change from on to off yep. back on your pedals. Yep. Exactly. And that's all something you train for and you work, you do intervals kind of like on the red line. So mm-hmm. you can make, you can make those transitions easier um, and gracefully, even though you're kind of redlined and tired. So, yeah. um, that's all stuff that riders in Europe will train for. And when you went from racing in the States mm-hmm. to riding in Europe, was that, what was that transition like? Like there's, there's some disciplines yeah. where, you know, some people will say, all right, well, my home country, I was here. And then yeah. I went to the world stage mm-hmm. and was like, oh man, I got to level this up. Mm-hmm. Was that your experience or did you feel like you walked in pretty well on par with the mm-hmm. girls you were riding against. I walked on, walked in pretty well on par, mainly because like I was winning in the U.S. enough to need more competition. Okay. Um, yeah. As cocky as it is, I was winning by one and a half to two minutes mm-hmm. in a cross race against good competition. And it's like, I just needed more competition. So when I yeah. went over to Europe, um, I was in the front of the group. Uh, I definitely, the first race I did, it was a learning experience. I made a ton of mistakes. I think I finished 10th in a World Cup. Not great because I knew I could have done better just because all the mistakes I made and like the just the dumb stuff getting stuck behind the wrong people and passing at the wrong time. Just stuff you learn in your first race with new competition. And then the next race was world championships and I got second. So it's like, oh wow, yeah, Yeah. I learned like that 10th place taught me a lot. And then for the next week, I learned, you know, who's fast, Mm -hmm. what I needed to do. It was also a muddy race that helped. But uh, I was able to kind of go over to Europe and already be at the front. Which helps a ton because like, yeah. it's way more fun racing at the front than the back. Way more fun. <laughs> After experiencing both sides of that, uh-huh. <laughs> that spectrum, yeah. I don't take racing at the front every day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> and was that, was that a, a fairly welcoming environment when mm-hmm. you made it to Europe? Not at all. Um, things with Belgians, they're very friendly people, but you've got to get into the circle. Yeah. Like once you know them, once they know you, they are super helpful and supportive and friendly. It just takes kind of like breaking into that circle of trust. So that just took some time. Yeah. The last couple of seasons, um, we met some really good friends and we felt a lot more of a part of the, um, the mm-hmm. culture and like the scene there. And I mean, it didn't help that we didn't speak the language. Sure. That's always an issue. And I didn't, I didn't learn it and I probably should have, but I didn't. Everybody speaks English and they speak English well. So it's. Right. <sighs> yeah. I have to say not necessary, um, but it probably would have been better if I learned the language. Yeah. Um, I was wondering because I had heard just from other stuff that I'd read of other racers that that can be mm-hmm. a pretty big mental challenge, mm-hmm. an emotional one yeah. to suddenly be away from your family for a long period of time in a place that feels maybe a little closed to outsiders and is dreary and rainy. And then the only time you're really interacting with people is competition. Yep. That's about right. Yeah. Okay. So that's tough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of hits the nail on the head right there. Uh, but like the last two seasons we had the camper, maybe three seasons, we had the camper um, we rented an apartment with um, some from some really great people, and then we just had kind of a more sense of uh, inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, just being able to have like you know, even through COVID, we had a small circle. We do dinners, and like six of us or eight of us would have dinner, and just kind of like within our bubble, 
of everyone getting COVID testing. Yeah. So that's one thing with the racing this year. Like we all we did COVID tests every ten days, um, in order to raise, and everybody in the bubble had to get one every ten days too. So not only are we like social distancing, and mm-hmm. like nobody's out of the race unless you have a negative COVID test and a mask. So they are really good. I think we went through the whole season without one positive COVID test, and oh, there's wow. probably a three hundred person traveling circus every weekend Holy or God. more. So I mean, you think about yeah, that. That's nice. how like I think I mean that's how good of a job they did. With yeah. keeping it safe for everybody, mm-hmm. so um, as mu- as annoying as the COVID testing was every ten days and expensive, I uh, I think it was worth the effort. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned that you met your husband in mm-hmm. in cyclocross, mm-hmm. and he, was he your ma- mechanic? Did he I did. Right? Yeah, he did mechanic, yeah. manager, support, um, helped uh, with sponsorship. Like mm-hmm. he did, he did quite a bit of stuff. So it was kind of it was full on partnership, and we've been together since two thousand four. Uh, so yeah, it's been 24 seven since 2004 till this year. This year is the first time we've actually been apart doing anything oh. with like, he's working now and then I'm, you know, school and work too. So it's like, we, you know, high five as we kind of cross paths. We're in like <laughs> letting the dog out. <laughs> uh, so he would travel with you to all Yeah. We did everything things. together. Yeah. Yeah. So you, at least you had awesome. somebody there oh, in your for, corner yeah. the entire time yeah. if, if you yeah. didn't interact. Yeah. too much with the and as a cyclocrosser you have to have at least one mechanic yeah like you can't there's so much bike work so much bike cleaning like tires wheels bikes components mm. that you just need so much help and you need a, a professional experience mechanic and mark is really good at it like he's probably the top mechanic on the scene for for working on cross bikes and keeping the you know the i'll say the equipment balls in the air yeah <laughs> there's a lot yeah. of them uh so that's been that's been good that's been really good. I got lucky there. I bet you kept him on his toes too. <laughs> we have definitely have our moments. Like luckily we know each other so well and we know each other's moods. And even if we're not getting along, we still do the job well. Like we may be super angry at each other, but I know I come into the pit and my bike's going to be dialed no matter how much we dislike each other at the moment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at least like, you know, the the marriage stuff. Yeah. You're just like, oh, yeah. just just need a break. And I love you, but I need to miss you a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like yeah but like that never got in the way of a performance and doing the job and just kind of getting through yeah. um because we'll just like kind of put a pl- like put a pin in it and then like go do what we have to do and then come back to like whatever disagree- disagreement we were having so that's a good yeah, yeah. good balance we figured it out that way no i saw i saw one <laughs> video where he was talking about your uh your latest rig and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it seems like he takes a lot of pride in his work he takes a ton of pride in his work to the point where i'm just like it doesn't need to be that good <laughs> sometimes you can do less and it's also okay um yeah. but he he definitely especially the mechanic stuff he takes tons of pride in it and he wants it to look good and Trek does such a great job with the painting and the bikes and like making like Mm -hmm. i mean custom shoes and custom bikes and paint they they do such a good job and mark just wants to make sure that is presented as best it possibly can with clean bikes and shiny and um would mark be mad at you for bringing a bike back just mangled from a ride would just be like what are you doing out there no i'm actually really good with that stuff oh okay. yeah i don't think i've ever I think I've broken one rear derailleur in my career, and that was because somebody ran into me from behind. Really? Yeah. That's how gentle I am with the shifting. Okay. And, like, I just broke a front derailleur on my mountain bike, like, a week ago, but that's also 60 years old and just got worn out. I was going to say, you You're still like, have wait a, a second. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wait a second. <laughs> we really need to talk about this. 
That thing didn't break, it died because it the universe died. wants you to have a one-by. Yeah, seriously. Well, so here's the thing. Um, I got this bike from Track in like 2016, I think, and mm-hmm. it's like a Fuel EX, 120 front and rear. Love the bike. I could probably get a new one, but I love the bike so much, and it handles so great, and mm-hmm. it's got everything I need on it. I don't want to switch it. And it was the last bike I could buy with a front derailleur. Oh, Because okay. I really wanted to... I've, I, like gears, I like options. I like a big ring for the downhill, and I like a small mm-hmm. ring for climbing, and I hate big gaps in the cassette. I was just gonna say, I was I just gonna hate ask it if you when like it's, a really tightly packed. Cassette. I like a tight, yeah, tight mm-hmm. cassette. Like, I mean, I grew up with a straight block, so oh wow, yeah. I mean, that's what I was used to. Straight block for people who don't know is like I think at that point it's like a twelve twenty one with all mm-hmm. the gears. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let me explain this because yeah. they're like, what is that? Or maybe yeah, like twelve nineteen. It's whatever shaped it is. like a shot glass on its side. Like it's pretty yes. much just straight front to back. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I grew up riding that, and I'm used mm-hmm. to like maybe one or two RPMs between gears. Whereas, like, um, with the one by and the cog set, the spread, it might be 20 RPMs one gear to the next, and that just drove me nuts because it's either too big or too small, but never right. Yeah. So I always wanted like options. I wanted gears that suit me. So here's a question about mm-hmm. that. One of the hallmarks of cyclocross, or yeah, cyclocross, as mm-hmm. I understand it, mm-hmm. is very punchy, steep mm-hmm. climbs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Some people who are uninitiated mm-hmm. might think you would want a spread cassette mm-hmm. where you could just in three shifts go from hauling to punching straight up a thing. Not the case for well, you? Well, so for me, like I set it up with my gearing for cross is uh, I might just shift from big ring to little ring and I shift once at the yeah. bottom and the top. Whereas like if you have a spread like that, you got to shift five or six times to get to the right gear okay. and then do it again at the top. So for yeah. me, I would shift from big ring to little ring, sprint up the hill, little ring, big ring. It's one shift. And so with Shimano, it's all electric and it's super quick, crisp, yeah. no issues with it. So that was my logic. I like that. And like, mm-hmm. I don't know now, I think the the um, components and the gearing, it's all improving. So like going to a one by, I'm pretty sure that's going to be, and my, since my derailleur just died, I'm just going to be like, leave it in the little ring and not worry about it. <laughs> so even, even Mark's like, should I just take it off then? I was like, I'm sure it's fine. Yeah, like, okay. I don't know if I need a big ring anymore. I'm not going that fast. <laughs> Because <laughs> even I was gonna ride in the canyon with a friend of mine, and he, the derailleur broke. He didn't have time to like truly fix it, um, because I was kind of heading out the door, and he like left it in the big ring, and I was like, no, like Mark, you're gonna want to put that in the little ring. Going to go climbing up the canyon. Yeah, we, we <laughs> like, don't need it all. The I way don't up need there. the big ring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cross chaining all day and hiking. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, Does so well? yeah, no, no, it's not great. Not so it's much. not great. At least you know how to run with your bike really well. <laughs> yeah. I do, but a heavy mountain bike, it's a little slower. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little different game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but I might be moving to a one by fairly soon. We'll see. Okay. Well, we may have to check back on that. Make yeah. Sure. Yeah. As, as a mountain biking show <laughs> that is near and dear to our hearts. So. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh. <laughs> I'm curious. Was it was it always cycling? Like, did you ever dabble in other areas or? Um, cycling was what I was best at. Yes, I grew up playing all the sports. Okay. Um, my mom, I think, mom and dad both got me and my brother into sports, I think just to keep us busy doing stuff for a good reason. But I, let me see, did softball, soccer, ice hockey, figure skating, um, golf, tennis, equestrian, cross country, ran cross country, lacrosse, basketball, field hockey. Like I did all the sports. Yeah, I loved them. Um, But cycling was what I excelled at. So kind of rose to the surface pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like my my dad would put on bikes when I was a junior, bike races when I was a junior, and like he always had a kids race. Um, he one of them since the um, racing was in downtown Wilmington, Delaware, and they had um, 
kind of inner city population that were good athletes but didn't have opportunity to ride bikes. So my dad actually organized, I think, 20 bikes through, I want to say Raleigh maybe, but like 20 10-speed bikes for the inner city kids to race. So we did street sprints and like the kids could race and like just kind of open like opportunity for like that after school period between like four and six yeah. to keep kids busy. And like they loved it and it was fun. And so I kind of got started with that doing street sprints when I was like eight, nine, ten, like through 12 or 13 or something. And like racing with juniors, junior boys, but there wasn't too, too many girls racing. But yeah, that was a great way to get kids involved. And mm-hmm. it was fun. The kind of, that's how I got started with with the bike racing that's fun mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. a great way to start yeah. Oh, yeah yeah it was lucky so one of the things that a lot of people who are at a high level in their sport talk about is getting to the top is easy compared to staying there mm-hmm. so the idea of saying 15 national championships in a row sounds insane how did you maintain that level of not only physical but mental preparation and fitness and toughness to just say every year mm. I'm going to still be right here at the top. Oh, that's a good question. Honestly, I'd never like thought about it that way. I just liked racing my bike. I liked being fit and I liked the lifestyle. So I did everything I possibly could to contain or continue and maintain that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, and that usually requires winning and getting results. <laughs> <laughs> it does require winning. Trek like, isn't sponsoring me because I don't win. <laughs> It helps to get results. It definitely makes it easy to ask for money. <laughs> um, but no, I just loved it and definitely had the ups and downs, especially with sponsorships coming and going. And then it's just a tough, it's a tough lifestyle to to maintain, especially as a woman's bike racer. Mm-hmm. Um, Why do you say that? Just because we just don't get the money and the support that men get. Yeah. Um, it's just the reality of the situation. I'm mm-hmm. hoping it's changing. I think it is changing. But like if I was a, a male with the same Palmares and the same kind of experiences, I would be making way more money and yeah. much better off than I am now. So it's mm. like, it's just the way it is. Unfortunately, that's the reality of it. I think it's going to change, especially as more sponsors and money comes into women's bike racing. But yeah, yeah well, it's, it was, it was a struggle. And a lot of the ups and downs I kept, Mark and I just kept, to ourselves like a lot of people didn't see all the shit we went through so um i mean it's health issues and asthma issues and allergies and just trying to work through feeling awful and not being able to train because i can't breathe because of forest fires or allergies or i ate something i had an allergic reaction i just lost two weeks of training like i had that stuff constantly so i'm just yeah i just got tired of it um i did i feel like i did as much as i could and i did well with what i had to work with um, and I think it's just the grit and perseverance that, I don't know, I think I was just born with. I had an older brother who beat me up all the time, like, and he was super athletic and I chased him around all the time. So I think it just, you, I grew up with having that kind of tough mindset and not giving up and just, I'm stubborn yeah. as hell, <laughs> which is really good to a point. <laughs> yeah. But sometimes being stubborn, you just do yourself a disservice. And I have, like, I mean, there's a couple times I'm so stubborn and hard headed where I was having an uh, allergic response in a race in, I think it was in Arkansas. And uh, I have really bad seasonal allergies and I didn't quite realize how bad they were until I got to this race because Colorado and Arkansas, different, different allergens. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I was riding well. Um, 
I don't even think I was taking allergy medicine. I think I may have had albuterol at that point for asthma, but I took it as needed. Um, but I went to that race, and I think 45 minutes in, I just started having, like, I don't know, it was my throat closing up or, like, my lungs or whatever it was. But I just, I couldn't breathe. And I was starting to have an asthma attack. And, of course, like, I just... Like, it'll go away. It'll be fine. Yeah, it's mm. fine. I'll just back this off a little bit. I'll do another lap. Oh, my God. So I got through. I went past the start finish, which I shouldn't have. I kept riding through and it just got worse and worse and worse to the point where I got to the side of the course where I just, my body shut down. I couldn't breathe. I was having an asthma attack for maybe 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Like, it was scary to the point where the medics had to come up the trail with oxygen, but they had to hike in like a mile just to get to me. Wow. Yeah. And like Whoa. my O2 went down to 79, couldn't breathe. Yeah. And then oxygen, they're like, <laughs> got back down to the ambulance. And I was like, yeah, I'm good. No, no worries. I don't, I don't need to go to the hospital. This shit's expensive. How to stay ambulance to the hospital. I was like, no, yeah. I'm good. And it's like, well, let's keep you on oxygen for a bit and like reassess in like 10 minutes. And as soon as I took the oxygen out, I just went to an asthma attack immediately. And they're like, okay, we're going to the hospital. I'm like, oh, oh no. Oh my God. So I got there, oxygen, Benadryl, um, what is it? Epinephrine, all of that shit to keep my airways open and to help me breathe again. And then I was like two hours in and I was like, I think I'm good now. Yeah. So, and that was like not, that was the first time and I, yet I did it again <laughs> with the bee sting. Oh, I was like, I'm oh good. God. I'll push through it. <laughs> well, riding, beasting, well riding. Yeah, I got yeah. stung. Yeah, I, would, uh, I got stung in Sea Otter, like at the top of a hill, when I was doing like a VO2 effort. And, uh, like somebody, like, are you allergic? And I was, I didn't think I was until I went to a full-on like anaphylaxis asthma attack, and the, they're like, I've got an EpiPen. Oh <laughs> like, God. Yeah. So again, that was, yeah, oxygen, ambulance, and fun stuff. So. We often on this show, and we'll get there mm -hmm. at the end of this, mm -hmm. we, we do a little thing that we just call best day, worst day. I think mm. you might have just given us a couple of hints on maybe some of those. <laughs> that was a tough day, but honestly, the worst day was getting the bill. I was oh. like, yeah, I think it was a $3,000 bill. For, oh, man. Yeah, I was, and it's out of state, so insurance is like, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> like, probably would be oh, $30,000 today. Yeah, uh, yeah, well, this is probably... At least 10 years ago, maybe more. I can actually verify that. Yeah. I had a really bad wreck at Winter Park yeah. a couple of years ago. Yeah. And when they handed me the tab for that one, it was nearly $40,000. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. So, although hilariously, because yeah. America, at the bottom. <laughs> We've uh, got the best health coverage everywhere. Well, we, we have the best health care, yeah. But at the bottom, it was hilarious. They were yeah. like, here's the bill for 40000 But if you pay it today, you can pay five. I was like, wait a minute. Wait a what, second. Yeah, what's going on here? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, because it's a cash. No, yeah, a cash, no insurance thing. They were just like, hey, under yeah. the table. Yeah, so. I do that now. I'm just like, it's, I have no insurance and like the price is cut in a third. And I'm like, it's the way it's going to go. <laughs> yeah, which is one of the things I think a lot of people don't realize. They say like, oh, professional athlete, you probably have all the best care of all kinds. And yet the number of people who are doing it on a shoestring where mm -hmm. your job requires you to be in perfect physical health and yet go mm -hmm. do things that put you in danger. And yet you have no health insurance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, granted, we have a high deductible plan. Sure. But again, like that only, that yeah. I only obviously use that if I'm in the hospital and I'm, it's $100,000. Like yeah. that's what that's for. Right. But like the day-to-day -day stuff, well, no, there's no way I'll meet the deductible. So I don't use it. So with that kind of that reality, we're there. That's like a good way to tie into saying, you know, during the lot, that period of time, mm -hmm. those 15 years, especially, mm -hmm. was there ever a point in there where you thought, 
this is enough. Like, oh, for I'm sure. Done. Yeah, I fought that three times. Yeah, I almost quit three times. My husband talked me off the ledge. <laughs> what, what were those? <laughs> I can't remember. There's so many blends together. But like, so I've got like health issues where I've got a gene mutation that um in the methylation process, MTHFR. So I have both my genes are, um, mut are mutations. So I don't process histamine well. Um, I get really bad muscle pains that last for two to three weeks at a time, four weeks at a time. So I've just got health issues that I've dealt with through the years that get to the point where I just like, I just want to stop. I'm so, I get, I just get fed up and frustrated and want to stop. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of led me to quit a couple of times and then just, just kind of not getting good results or, um, difficulty with finding sponsorship dollars again, like health insurance stuff, just like the cost. It, yeah. Eventually just, you get tired of it. You get tired of working really hard without getting compensated or, um, seeing like kind of benefiting from success mm -hmm. it's like you work really hard and you don't necessarily get any reward and i think that after a bit you're just like okay that's enough yeah. enough disappointment and like the whole what gets me is like everyone's like oh as long as you work hard and want it you're going to be successful and i'm like no that's like the amount of people who work hard and do everything right and still aren't successful is a ton yeah. So it annoys me when people say it's like, oh, I just wanted it more and I worked hard. It's like, no, you mm -hmm. had a ton of talent too. Like, yeah. let's not forget that. <laughs> and luck. I'm and guessing. luck. Yeah. And luck. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. a lot coming together there. There's a lot coming together. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a dream for, for a lot of people to be mm -hmm. able to, to mm -hmm. race in the pro level in the mm -hmm. world stage. Mm -hmm. and that's, mm -hmm. I mean, it's something that you, you got to do and you got to chase your dream mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. and pursue a whole career in that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm grateful for that. Like the amount of, like I've traveled the world and someone else has paid for it. I've seen almost <laughs> so much stuff and I love that. I mean, I can't trade that for anything. I know I wouldn't. Uh, I do think it's difficult now that I'm 42 and like starting over. <laughs> mm. That's not awesome. But I'm like, am I gonna, I don't regret the 20 years of experiences and adventures that got me to this point. Like I wouldn't trade that for anything. So it's That's, just the reality of the situation. It's amazing getting to talk to you about this with, you know, in the idea of pursuing a dream and a lot of the pressure for kids growing up is yeah. go get a job that's stable and secure and provides you, uh, you know, financial future. You can get a 401k going and you can get everything set up for mm -hmm. your family and just that's, that's what you do. Yep. And you, you chose to take the pro cycling route. <laughs> I know, right? Which is, is very different. <laughs> There's not a lot of security in it. There's a huge amount of stress in yeah. order for you to yeah. maintain those sponsorships. Yeah. That's kudos. Or oh, like, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. And it's funny because I remember sitting down with my dad. Um, I think I was a junior in college. Um, and I was switching my my um, um, major from exercise physiology to exercise science with like a um, fitness management business side of it. And my dad's like, what are you going to do with this degree exactly? Like, <laughs> he's an engineer. He's a computer. He's like very like realistic and like just methodical about stuff. And he's like, so how are you going to make money with an exercise physiology degree? Just curious. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to coach. And he's like, oh, God, Katie. <laughs> just no. He's like, don't you, can you do something where you can like find a job and make money? <laughs> And I was like, but I love the health field. I love, it's like, this is the only thing I'm interested in. So he's like, okay, if that's what you want to do. 
And sure enough, I went from graduated school and then I started coaching and I coached the whole time and then I got into pro cycling. And I, I mean, I use the physiology part to, you know, learn how to go fast and train. And yeah. I still use it. I still coach people and I use the science all the time. So I still use that degree. <laughs> it's just really cool and encouraging to see the route you've taken. Yeah. And it it's a little frustrating sometimes that many people work their whole lives mm -hmm. in order to get to a retirement at the age of 65 mm -hmm. so then they can enjoy their life. Mm -hmm. Like, what, what, that's backwards in we my We did mind. it backwards. Yeah. Like, Mar like, we definitely did it backwards. And we always joked about that. It's like, I've had a retirement since I was like 21 or something. My dad made me set it up. So it's like, at least I've mm -hmm. got, I've been paying into that. Um, but yeah, my husband and I were just like, we did it opposite. We're going to see the world and travel and do everything when we're young and healthy. And so by the time we're 65, we can find a little piece of property out in the middle of nowhere, put our feet up, like not, don't need to travel anywhere. We've, except maybe New Zealand because my husband's from New Zealand. So that's a place where like, if we could just stop in New Zealand and like retire there, I think that would be the ultimate. I know. Place near and dear to my heart. Oh my God, I I've love it. a couple it. times. Yeah. And... I think we've been five times. We uh, want to go more, but it's such an expensive trip. And with COVID, yeah. oh with the, gosh. yeah, it's right now it's tough. So we're hoping in the next couple of years with COVID will be, I don't know, at least we can travel to, to New Zealand without having to do like a three-week quarantine, two yeah. or three, whatever it is. It's oh, too much. <laughs> too much. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. So real quick, you have, as we've been talking about this idea of you resetting and looking ahead. Mm -hmm. What is that like? Because we were talking about this before the show, you and I, roughly the same age, yeah. hitting that point where most of our peers are well through their career, really established. Yep. You're in like the middle management, looking at your C-suite role, if that's your path that you're on. Mm -hmm. What is that like for you? Like, are you excited? Like, because the two things that I thought, yeah. what are you most yeah. apprehensive about moving into a new career? Mm -hmm. Which also, by the way, what is that new career? <laughs> and then yeah. what are you most excited about? Um, I'm excited to not have training and bike racing as the priority anymore. Mm. I'm definitely like enjoying the fact that that's the least of my worries waking up in the morning. Like I don't, I think about exercising and if I can fit it in that day, but I don't think about bike racing or training and which is awesome because I'm <laughs> over like wondering how I'm going to feel that day if I'm going to get the intervals in. Yeah. Um, but no, I started, so I, um, started going back to school. I want to go back for nursing. So I started that, <laughs> I started that um, process, um, not necessarily realizing the prereqs that's required. Mm -hmm. um, there's quite a few that, of course, since I didn't, I finished my degree 20 years ago, obviously I have to retake everything, um, which is fine. Like I need a refresher anyways, but like, it just takes more time. And then I'm yeah. going to go try to work as I work through it. So that could take even more time. Um, but no, I just, so I went through Pikes Peak Community College and just finished the, um, nursing assistant program there. So yeah. I just need to take the state exam for the CNA program or for the certification and then look for a job. So right now it's like CNA, which I really like. I'm doing home care right now. Mm -hmm. You know, some days are better than others, but I'm learning a lot. It's, it's good experience. Uh, but everybody in my class there, I think the oldest one is... Well, I think he was 30, 32 or something. Military guy. Yeah. He was mel medic, military guy. Um, so he's kind of going through, thing seeing what he wants to do. But everyone else, they're early 20s. Um, one of the girls is 19, which is <laughs> hilarious because she's like, oh, you're old enough to be my mom. And I'm like, yes, I am. Yeah, you didn't even mention that, but yeah, wow. thanks. <laughs> which is the funny thing is, is like, I get along perfectly fine with the maturity. <laughs> <laughs> like, I might be 
20 years older than you, but I yeah. feel like we're on the same maturity level. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're always like, you're how old? Like, my mom's that old. And yeah. I was like, I am. Yeah, so, shut up. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just funny, like, no. the difference. And then... Um, Had you hit that point in racing where you lined yeah, up and you're sure. looking around at the oh, start yeah. line mm-hmm. you're like, I've literally been racing longer than you're alive. Yep. Oh, yeah. Not only that, like, I'm old enough to legitimately be your mom as a planned pregnancy. <laughs> like, not even knocked up at 16. <laughs> so I was looking around. I'm just like, I think it's time. I'm old and I'm slow. I just can't go fast anymore. And, like, that that obviously dawned on me this year because I was just so mm-hmm. slow. And I was just like, this is enough. I am I am done. Wow. <laughs> Racing. I'm, like, working hard to get 30th. I've had enough. So. Yeah. And going yeah. into this year, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Your, was your plan to retire and move into something else? Um, I was actually going to try to go through Louisville um, Crossworlds. So next year was the, but that was like the big picture goal. Um, but I think in December of this season, it was going so badly. And Mark and I were talking. I'm just like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I did everything I could. I worked really hard. I trained. I thought I was in good shape. And then I started racing and I was so far off the back. And I'm like, I cannot do this for one more season. This is just too hard mentally and physically. And it's expensive too. It's one thing using sponsorship money to, you know, pay all the bills um, and win prize money, bonus money. But when you're not winning any prize money or bonus money, you're just spending money. And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) Like the the bonus and the prize money as a, professional cyclist that's kind of your that's your income that's your bread and butter yeah, yeah yeah and like the other sponsorship dollars covers expenses and so if you're not making any prize or bonus money you're covering expenses but you're just breaking even you're not and yeah. so that was like the couple seasons of just breaking even i'm like oh, i just gotta kind of over it i want to do something different wow so in december mark and i are like we're done we we're um dropping mic and leaving <laughs> <laughs> And that, of course, brings us Mm -hmm. to the very, very surprising way things turned here in 2021. Yes. So for the moment, we're going to take a little bit of a break, Mm -hmm. let everybody get up, and then we're going to come back and dive in to the rest of it. If you want to know more about stand-up pedal action, you can check us out online at supa.bike. That's S-U-P-A dot B-I-K-E. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.